Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont and Associates. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review, is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news and topics. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining me for this episode of uh, Week in Review. Today is March 16th, and I'm going to be going alone as my co-host, Bob Hughes, had to fill in for a uh, an FM radio station in Michigan. So it's just me today, um, which is fine. Uh, I'll be able to get through things, hopefully with the same amount of enthusiasm as Bob, but you know we'll see. Uh, I want to, before we get going, just thank our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Paychex. Uh, Paychex is really a wonderful company. They offer payroll processing. They essentially handle all of your payroll and payroll or employment taxes. Um, I've been using them through the law firm for years, and it really does save me a tremendous amount of, of, of hassle because calculating payroll taxes is not something that I'm good at or that I want to do. And so, um, you know, the ability to outsource your payroll to a company like Paychex is wonderful. I'll tell you, um, what we actually do is we hand our checks or we produce our checks from, from our office, but Paychex does all of the um, payroll processing for us. So, I mean, they have options that fit every budget, any way that you want to structure it. Um, they can help you. And they even have additional options where they handle some HR stuff. Um, but all of our listeners are uh, being treated with a coupon from Paychex, and that entitles you to a free month of payroll processing. So it gives you an opportunity to give them a try at no cost to you, see if you like it, see if it makes sense for you. And you know, as a small business owner or an entrepreneur or even a mid-sized company, a solution like Paychex can save you time, money, and money that you might you know, end up paying back in taxes because you've made a mistake. If you go to utlradio.com on the homepage, there is a uh, section that, that thanks our sponsors, our monthly sponsors, and you will see a link to the Paychex coupon. Click on the link, sign up, and they'll give you a free 30 days worth of payroll processing. So I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the podcast and for all that they do for our company. Appreciate it. All right, the other thing I want to mention is the website, utlradio.com. I've been talking in the past few weeks about updates to the site, and we have been making those updates. So if you head over to utlradio.com, you can see some of the changes to the site. And the one that I'm most excited about is the Ask Your Question page. There is a link to it on the homepage. Obviously, there's also a link up above. What that does is it allows our listeners to ask a legal or business question directly into your smartphone or your computer, 
and record it. It's like voicemail, except it's voicemail on the computer. And then we will get your recording, and we will work your question into our Tuesday live legal and business Q&A. So it's an opportunity for you to record a question, anything about business or the law. It could be something about promotion or marketing or how to deal with things online. It could be anything from you know how to start up a business or what you do in a particular circumstance or situation, how you handle a lawsuit, how you protect yourself from liability. You name it, you can ask it, and then uh, we get notification of it. If we use your question on air during the Tuesday show, we're going to send you a free UTL radio mug, and T-shirts are coming back in stock, so we'll send that out as well. Um, so check that out on the website. It is a feature that is... Um, provided to us through a third party called SpeakPipe. And again, I want to thank uh, Pat Flynn, uh, who most of you know if you are following anything dealing with Internet and passive income and entrepreneurs on the Internet, because Pat Flynn is is one of the the best. And he had something like this on his site and mentioned it in some of his podcasts. And so we incorporated it, and I think it's a great tool, so I encourage you to take advantage of it. All right, let's get going but before I get into um, the news that, that we've planned, I just want to mention something about a meth lab. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, you know that I happen to enjoy the show Breaking Bad, and I really have been getting um, a, a lot of enjoyment out of the prequel, Better Call Saul. Uh, I think it's a great show. I think it's a lot of fun. But if you are a fan of Breaking Bad and you watch the episodes towards the end of the series where um, Walt is going in and cooking meth in houses that are being tented for uh, bug spray. You know, they're going to spray for bugs. And so what they do is they go in at night under the tent, they set up their portable meth lab, they cook, and then they leave. Well, it sounds unbelievable and fanciful, right? It sounds like something out of a show. But in Indiana, a meth lab was discovered at a Walmart restroom I think this is a fascinating story because it is um, what they were showing on the, on the show. So it, it's just got this real-world um, quality to it. It's, like, unbelievable. Uh, but a restroom at Walmart in uh, an eastern Indiana town was closed indefinitely after an employee discovered a working meth lab inside. State police say that a Walmart employee alerted police after seeing a man he described as suspicious entered the restroom about 11.30 p.m., and he had a backpack. He left the backpack somewhere in the bathroom, came out without it, and um, state police came in, and they found a working meth lab. So either the show imitates life or life imitates the show, one way or the other. But I found that fascinating just because I'm such a big fan of Breaking Bad. So there are real portable meth labs, apparently, at this Walmart bathroom. And I'm sure that Walmart does not endorse cooking meth in their bathrooms. But All right, so let's, uh, let's move on to today's stories. So the first one is out of Michigan, and this according to Courthouse News. A gun-toting dad sues the school for keeping him out. So Michigan law bars anyone from carrying concealed pistols in the school grounds, but one parent wants a judge to let him openly carry his gun at an elementary school. Kenneth Herman, who is a plaintiff, has made local headlines Uh, When he walked into a Vienna Township school on September 4, 2013, to pick his daughter up with a loaded pistol strapped to his waist. 
Herman noticed a sign about the school's status as a weapons-free zone. However, he informed the school officials that he believed that the sign that the school had posted was without legal authority and in contrary or and contrary to Michigan laws. Herman, who has a uh, concealed pistol license, notes that possession of an openly carried pistol on Michigan is not an unlawful activity, and that state law preempts local unit of government from regulating firearm possession. So what he's arguing essentially is that Michigan law allows you to carry guns if you've got a permit and license, and that the local administrative body, the school district, cannot preempt that state law. Well, the principal board members and the superintendent indicated that the school district was following a policy by another intermediate school district uh, about not allowing guns to be carried openly into school. Herman says in his complaint, which was filed, that the school denied him access several times throughout the year when he tried to openly carry his pistol into the school. Uh, Usually Herman was trying to pick up his daughter after classes, but he was also shut out of a parent-teacher conference and a field trip that he was supposed to chaperone, according to the complaint. Herman says he is facing the same problem this school year. Uh, Though the school initially allowed him entry without incident on November 21, 2014, he was thereafter asked to leave because the principal saw the the, the pistol that he was openly carrying and, according to the complaint, said that uh, Herman felt as though he was being threatened by the school district. Crazy. Um, So Michigan Open Carry, Inc., which joins the complaint as a co-planter, is an individual and now a group, a a lobby group. um, This appears to be something remotely similar to the NRA, uh, coming in and joining this lawsuit and saying, as a gun owner, and we have rights as as gun owners, you can't preempt state law. Now, this is interesting because there are a lot of different regulations concerning school zones. You know, if you're driving down a street and the speed limit's 40, well, they can change the speed limit, obviously, to a lower rate of speed during school times. Now, you can argue, though, that that is a state or Department of Transportation-sponsored or endorsed or regulated activity. This is interesting because... What is the benefit, or what is the the argument? What are they standing on at the school district to say that you can't bring a gun into the school when the law says that you are allowed to open carry? So it's interesting. Now, on the flip side of this, while I do believe that you know gun owners do have rights, I don't know that I would want a gun in a school on a field trip. It just worries me because it's, you know, possibility of accidental discharge or someone getting a hold of it. Um, You know, it it doesn't seem to me to be necessary in a school. So if this were to come back with a decision upholding the school's uh, position that he can't come into the school district with an an open pistol um, or a visible pistol, I would almost understand this because I don't know that I would feel comfortable. But again, I don't live in a state where you can do that easily. I mean, you can't just carry a gun. Um, If I lived in a state where the law was different, maybe I'd feel differently. Maybe I'd feel more accustomed to it. Um, You know, certainly in Texas and Arizona and those areas of the country where 
you know, a lot of people carry a gun, even in Pennsylvania, for example. Um, I have a lawyer friend in Pennsylvania who has guns and carries a gun with him. He has one in his car. He takes one to, to court with him. Obviously, he checks it. But um, maybe I've been used to it. I guess it's the equivalent of living in a state where you don't pump your own gas, right? Like I live in New Jersey. So it's it's not a state that has a lot of gun-friendly rules. And you can't pump your own gas. So when I take a ride anywhere else in the country and I've got to pump my own gas, um, it seems a little strange, right? But I, I think that's what this is akin to. So for me, I, I feel as though you shouldn't have guns in a school district. But again, I don't live in an area where I'm used to seeing people carry. So well, it's interesting to see where this goes because the real legal issue is can a school district preempt the state law? And that could be precedential. Um, we'll see where that goes. All right, next, also from Courthouse News, an auto-renewing SeaWorld membership is contested. So this is coming out of San Diego, uh, the SeaWorld in San Diego. SeaWorld allegedly defrauds customers by automatically renewing their membership without making them aware that they signed up for continuous service, a woman hoping to represent a class action claims. Lead plaintiff Sherry Garger says that the failure by SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment to conspicuously disclose its automatic renewal agreements means that all services rendered to consumers like her in the last four years are deemed to be an unconditional gift. At the end of a two-year period, the membership automatically renewed on a month-to-month basis, the complaint states. Plaintiff's payments method or payment method was charged and continues to be charged every month on a recurring basis. Garger says SeaWorld generated about $693 million in revenue from subscription services during the first three quarters of 2014, and that approximately 30% of its admission ticket purchases are made online. A basic two-year membership to SeaWorld San Diego costs $155 before tax, according to its website. Instead of selecting the $155 pass for its membership, customers on SeaWorld's website can choose the easy pay option of $24.82. Once they add the easy pay pass to their cart, the cart preview displays a red box with a white exclamation point alongside the $24.82 charge. Clicking that exclamation point opens a window that says, plus a 23 additional monthly payments of $5.66 with tax. Gerger says that once customers confirm their purchase, SeaWorld charges their card. Uh, but defendant failed and continues to fail uh, failed to present the automatic renewal offer terms or continuous server offer terms in a clear and conspicuous manner and in visual proximity to the request for consent to the offer before the subscription or purchasing agreement was and is fulfilled, Garger alleges. She says SeaWorld, furthermore, failed to provide an acknowledgement that included the automatic renewal or continuous service offer terms, cancellation policy, and information regarding how to cancel in a manner that is capable of being retained by the customer. Uh, Garger wants to represent a class of similarly situated California consumers who bought automatically renewing one- or two-year memberships from SeaWorld in the last four years. So, Obviously, she has an attorney. She's filed a, you know, a proposed class action. The way that class actions work, and I've talked about it before, is that 
you can file a class action, but it doesn't actually become a class action until it is certified by the court, and that takes some time. And in, and in order to be a certified class, you have to meet various hurdles. So you've got to show that there are a group of consumers that have essentially uh, encountered the exact same thing from the liability standpoint, and then sustained reasonable, calculable, calculable um, similar damages. So overall, the general criteria for class action, just based upon this financial situation, right? So you sign up, you automatically get charged. That could conceivably be grounds for a class action. There are other factors or prongs that come into play. But in general, this doesn't scream out to me as just some nonsense lawsuit. Now, um, these sorts of lawsuits are very, very common because it's easier for a class action attorney to argue a case involving money or charges just because it's more of a factual case. Class actions that involve um, labor or products, it's slightly different. When you've got a black and white issue, like a guarantee that's not being complied with, or in this case, money that is being charged, all you have to prove is some violation of the law. Now, this could be under California's consumer protection laws. It could be under some other law. But the fact here is that all they've got to do is establish that the vast majority, the reasonable person, would not understand that there would be a recurring, automatically renewing charge. And that's going to come down to a factual determination, and we're going to have to look at the contract, the website, the terms and conditions, and see if it was um, conspicuously provided by SeaWorld. So this is a lot of money that this plaintiff claims SeaWorld is making. What they're making on the automatic renewal, we don't know. And what we also don't know is what sort of difficulty is there involved in canceling? So... This is something that I think we're going to have to follow, and we'll try to get a copy of the complaint for next week and see where this is and where it goes. But um, you know, class actions take some time. They involve a lot of discovery, and it could be months or a year before a certification motion is actually um, you know, filed. So we'll see. We'll follow that one. All right, next. Uh, remember the, the Slenderman um, incidents that, that occurred? Well, young Slenderman stabbers lose it for juvenile trials. Um, and this is, is coming out of Courthouse News. In Wisconsin, the parents of a 13-year-old who stabbed a classmate 19 times last year sobbed at a hearing Friday as a judge refused to send the criminal case to juvenile court. While first-degree intentional attempted homicide charges that the girls, Morgan Geyser and Anissa Weir, face uh come with automatic presumption of being heard in an adult court, second-degree charges can be brought out of a juvenile court only by judicial order. Judge Michael Boren's ruling finds that the details of the May 31, 2014 stabbing support the first-degree murder charges. The defendant's next shot at sending the case against them to juvenile court is a reverse waiver hearing. Authorities arrested Geyser and Weir hours after they tried to kill their friend, Peyton Lutner outside Geyser's house where the girls had just had a sleepover. Lutner recovered and her assailants were deemed competent to 
stand trial as adults. Both the defendants and the victim were told at the time of the stabbing. Weir's defense is focused on painting Geyser as the ringleader, while Geyser's attorney has pointed to the girl's supposed belief that a fictional boogeyman called Slenderman would harm them and their families if they did not hurt Lutner. The charges against the girls show that they lured Lutner into the woods and stabbed her 19 times in an attempt to kill her. They allegedly planned to then walk to Slenderman's mansion, which they believed was in Nicollet National Forest, and live with him as proxies. Because they are more than than 10 years old, the girls' cases were automatically sent to adult court. This is um, something that I think a lot of people take issue with, and there's a lot of debate going on right now online about this. So you've got these kids that were, you know, really, really young, 12 years old at the time, and they went out and they, this was a clearly premeditated issue. They lured this girl into the woods and then stabbed her, not once, not twice, but 19 times. So, you know, in, in a murder case, you've got to be able to show, obviously beyond a reasonable doubt, that they committed the crime, knowingly, intentionally, all those things. And obviously an adult, being tried as an adult, has far more serious consequences, more jail time, okay, than it does if you're in the juvenile court. This is interesting because these kids, they were kids. I mean, you know, it's hard to believe that kids would be capable of this, but at 12 years old, they were. And they murdered or tried to murder this girl by stabbing her 19 times. Now they're faced with an adult trial. These kids could get long sentences, very long sentences. It's all going to come down to whether or not there is the intent for first-degree murder. And and that's going to really come out in, in court once we get beyond this initial phase of juvenile or adult, I think that they will remain of the nature of what they did. I mean, this isn't something that you overlook. This is a major story and um, a, a clearly premeditated incident. Once you get beyond this, and again, I believe it will stay where they're being tried as adults, now you'll start to see their defense. And the uh, best defense that could possibly put forward would be a defense that is based upon Slenderman. I mean, that's what they really are going to have to focus on um, on the defense side. They're going to have to be able to show that this was not necessarily premeditated, but that they did this under duress, that they truly believed that this fictional Slenderman was going to kill their family if they didn't do this. You know, this is sort of a a, uh, a different sort of defense than some sort of, um, you know, incompetency or um, insanity plea. I mean, this is clearly two kids who knew what they were doing. Now it's going to come down to does it create a first-degree murder or were they reasonable in their belief that this character, Slenderman, was going to do harm to them. I mean, that's where this is going to come down. So it's interesting, um, but I believe that they will stay in the adult court, and I think that they probably should be 
just because this wasn't something like, you know, two kids playing in the street and one pushes the other in front of a car. Maybe that should be in the juvenile court because you don't know whether or not it was intentional or why. It could have been a mistake. It could have been playing. There are, there are many things that would factor into bringing that down to the juvenile level. But luring someone into the woods, hiding there, and then stabbing them 19 times, I think that, um, you know, at 12 years old, you know that that's wrong. And, you know, I, I've got a, a 13-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And my 9-year-old knows that that's wrong. My three-year-old probably knows that that's wrong. So um, I understand why they're being tried as adults. All right, next, a student calls a professor way out of line. This is out of Houston, coming from Courthouse News. A college student claims in court that a professor tried to rape her after promising her an A if she slept with him and that when she confronted him with her boyfriend, he lied to police and uh, then said that they tried to rob him. Now, this is an interesting story because this is something that we've talked about before, quid pro quo sexual harassment. This is, so if you believe the allegations, then this professor was going to give her an A if she slept with him. Lisa Mims and her boyfriend Joshua Jackson, Jackson sued J.D. Oliver on March 11th in federal court. They claim... Um, that she approached Oliver, a professor at Prairie View A&M University in the fall of 2013, and had told him that she needed help because she had fallen behind in a course. Mims says that Oliver agreed to work with her, which she understood as meaning he would, meaning he would let her turn in assignments late and try to give her some help. Oliver told Mims that his reasons for working with her and getting her the book um, that she needed to help her with this course was because he was attracted to her. Further, Oliver said that he wanted her to love him in return for helping her. Oliver asked Mims to meet him off campus for sex. Mims said she told her boyfriend Joshua Jackson about the professor's proposition. Jackson recommended that they record future conversations with Oliver to protect her from false allegations that might arise later, according to the complaint. She claims that Oliver got physical at a meeting in his office on November 19th 2013, and began um, making additional proposals. Oliver stated that if Mims met with him off campus, he would allow Mims to enter her own A grade into the school's grading system, according to the lawsuit. Mims says she got up to leave Oliver's office, and at that moment, Oliver attempted to rape her for the first time, so she said a complaint. Mims claims that Oliver closed the door, pulled her against him, and squeezed her breast before she pushed him away and bolted from the office. Undeterred, Oliver repeatedly called Mims and asked if the deal was still on. He also tried to get her to meet him at a Best Western motel. Jackson told Oliver that he was busted. Jackson played the recordings to um, Oliver and Mims, and uh, this is according to the complaint. Mims noticed that a, a box of condoms that Jackson took was also photographed uh, while Oliver was holding it. So apparently there's a lot of proof out there. They've got the recording and then they've got these photographs. Um, uh, Oliver said that another student returned a textbook to him at the motel but showed with three men and that the man demanded $9,000 instead 
They took his cell phone. So this is a, a poorly written story, but confusing because apparently what's going on here, and I'm going to summarize this, is that she, Mims, believes that he attempted to rape her um, and proposition her. And then it looks as though uh, Oliver is saying that he arranged for a meeting and then additional people showed up and tried to blackmail him. Uh, So it looks as though they're going to have some sort of counterclaim if this becomes more of a civil thing. Um, Though the complaint states that Oliver attempted to rape Mims for a second time, when she knocked on his motel room door, the complaint does not allege that there was any physical contact between them at the time. So she is seeking punitive damages. This is a civil case for um, civil rights violations, official oppression, unlawful restraint, assault, defamation, and malicious prosecution. That arising out of what she believes to be the false accusations about being accosted by three men. Um, This is interesting because this is very factual. Uh, If the recordings are as we believe them to be, according to the complaint, and are intact and clearly show that he was propositioning her, then I think her case is much stronger than if there's no proof, no evidence, because now it's her word against his. And it is possible, because these things happen, as cynical as it may seem, uh, where you've got a boyfriend-girlfriend, and they come up with this idea to sort of blackmail somebody in power. And I've seen these cases before where there's not sufficient proof, and it turns out that uh, it was a, a, a ruse by boyfriend and girlfriend to get money out of somebody. So it is interesting that this is a civil case, that there are punitive damages alleged. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm saying if the evidence supports the allegation, then I believe they have a strong case, and that would be uh, obviously uh, the right thing if she was uh, treated in this manner. Um, And then that goes back to uh, the school as well. You know, is there any liability against the school? Does the school have any liability? Did they do a proper background check? Uh, was there anything that could have been found in this professor's background that would have or should have alerted the school that he might not be the best candidate for the position? This is all speculation, but that's how these things flow. It goes back and you've got to look and say, all right, well, is the school at fault as well for negligent hiring or negligent supervision? Or is this some intentional action by the professor that the school had no way of knowing about or protecting MIMS against? So that's how those things play out. Now, if any of you have ever had a consumer issue and you've gone online, one of the websites that you might have seen is a website called pissedconsumer.com. And it's a website that allows you to post your complaints and gripe essentially about your experience, your negative experience, with a customer or service provider. So um, in this recent ruling out of New York, a New York Court of Appeals ruled that PissConsumer.com need not identify the person who posted anonymous criticisms of a finance company on its website. The post in question described a supposedly misleading advertising promise by Woodridge Structure Funding claiming that the structured settlement business had promised $500 gift cards to prospective consumers, the pissed consumer user wrote that Woodbridge, quote, lies to their clients, end quote, 
and prospective customers. The PISC consumer user uh, also added that they will open, quote, forget about you and all the promises they made to you after you sign on the dotted line, close quote. Uh, Woodbridge wanted a judge to compel pissed consumers' disclosure of the author behind those statements, but the Manhattan Supreme Court denied Woodbridge's petition. The appellate division's Manhattan-based First Department affirmed on February 19th the motion was properly denied since petitioners failed to demonstrate that it has a meritorious cause of action as required to obtain pre-action discovery. The unsigned opinion states, Woodbridge failed to sway the court that the bloggers' allegations were false according to the ruling. When the statements complained of are viewed in the context, they suggest to a reasonable reader that a writer was dissatisfied with the customer service and with um, and, and utilized the Respondents Consumers Grievance website to express an opinion. And this is according to the appellate division. Other factors supporting the view that the statements constituted non-defamatory opinion were the disgruntled tone, anonymous posting, and predominant use of statements that cannot be definitively proved true or false, according to the court. Woodbridge maintained, meanwhile, uh, that or Woodbridge actually failed to show that the online statements damaged it, according to the ruling. So, this is a hot topic. We've seen websites um, or doctors, uh, I think it was a doctor in New York not too long ago, sue a website that was a consumer-friendly website that allowed people to post complaints. And this doctor, if I recall correctly, I'll have to go back and find the story. Um, so I might be giving you um, an inaccurate summary of this New York case. But if I recall correctly, he sued based upon um, complaints that were put up online, and he said they were false. I believe it was a plastic surgeon. Now, I'd have to go back again also and look at the outcome of this, but my point is that these lawsuits are really, really popular and prevalent. And, and I, I think we're going to see more of it because you do have people posting online, um, competitors posting negative comments to bring down their competitors' ratings online. Because now, let's well, face it, when you want to go look up a product or service and get an idea as to whether or not you might want to use that product or service, where do you go? You go online and you look at customer reviews. And the weight of customer reviews cannot be underestimated. So many companies have said to me, wow, you know, once we started getting positive reviews online, our business doubled, tripled. So depending upon your product and service, especially if you're a small business, online reviews can have a massive impact on you, negatively or positively. So here you've got a financial group saying that this customer who posted this online um, defamed them and, and injured their reputation. Now, what's interesting here is what the appellate division points out, which is that this really constitutes opinion by the part of the person posting the complaint. They are not attacking out of um, just spite or malice. There was a relationship that we believe between this customer and the financial group, and they are giving their opinion. Now, opinion is not something that is the subject of uh, a defamation action. You're entitled to your opinion. It's where your statements become untrue and where you can show as a defendant 
in, or as a plaintiff, I should say, in a defamation lawsuit, that you incurred actual damages. I mean, you've got to be able to show, for most types of defamation, you've got to be able to show that you had some sort of damage. And clearly, they're not going to be able to show that, uh, at least not with ease. So this is an interesting ruling because of the fact that we've seen other complaints like this about online opinion sites. And um, at least the first department out of New York believes that so long as a consumer posts their opinion, they're entitled to protection from a defamation lawsuit. All right, next we move to a telemarketer who must pay $6 million to settle an FTC claim. This coming out of Orlando, Florida. A telemarketer involved in a medical alert scheme targeting senior citizens must pay more than $6 million in penalties, a federal judge ruled. So this is um, one LLC, and 15 senior citizens in Florida. And apparently uh, they used pre-recorded calls, which, which we know um, can also be referred to as robot calls, to pitch purportedly free medical alert devices to senior citizens. So, you know, senior citizens are the target, unfortunately, of a tremendous amount of scams and schemes. Uh, I was reading over the weekend about an IRS scheme where uh, people were trying to defraud others by alleging that they owed tax debt or whatnot. But the fact is, is that they had so much information about the people that it was easy to believe that you actually were receiving a phone call from the IRS. So, um, unfortunately, senior citizens are a prime group, uh, a, t- a prime target for scammers and people who are looking to defraud. Um, now, the case here uh, is very interesting because it violates the uh, FTC rules. Now, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, they are responsible for the Do Not Call Registry um, and a lot of, of the other consumer protection laws that are written you know, under federal law because the FTC is obviously a, a federal law agency. So according to this, live agent must cooperate with the appointed receiver and submit compliance reports to the commission, the Federal Trade Commission, regarding certain changes for the next 20 years. Wow. So 20 years now, this company is going to be scrutinized by the FTC. And a judge said that uh, the FTC must serve the judgment on live agent. So this is a tremendous amount of money. What what should you learn from this? Well, A, if you have a loved one as a senior citizen, you've got to be at least aware of the fact that senior citizens are targeted by companies. And you should talk to your loved one or your friend or whoever it might be and make sure that they understand that they could be targeted and that if something were to happen, they were to receive a call, um, somebody promising them something, somebody threatening them with something, that they should immediately report it. They should either talk to an attorney or they should call the State Department of Consumer Protection, whatever state you're in, and ask. You can also do a general search online and see if there's a particular scam going around. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard, I think, for a senior citizen when they receive a phone call and they say, you owe this or I'm going to give you that. 
oftentimes they're living alone or maybe they're living together with their spouse and they're not sure, they're not up on technology and a lot of the scams that are running. And I think that uh, that's why they are preyed upon because it's easy to take advantage of them and it's not clearly not right. So that's what you should learn. Now, the second thing you should take from this is if you are a business, you have to understand that the FTC does control a lot of the marketing and advertising activities. So this would include things like contests and giveaways. You cannot just start a giveaway or a contest without looking at the FTC rules. I guarantee you, you get yourself in trouble. Now, it might not be the first time or the second time, but if you're running these contests on social media, you will be found out and you will be fined. So understand that the FTC is there, that they do regulate. If you have questions about a contest you want to run or a giveaway, you should talk to an attorney or at the very least call the FTC and see if you can get somebody on the phone and find out whether or not what you propose to do somehow violates FTC rules. All right, so baseball season right around the corner. And according to WallStreetJournal.com, the Mets fired executive settles a suit against the team. Uh, Lee Castrogene, the Mets' former senior vice president for ticket sales and services, has settled her wrongful termination lawsuit lawsuit against Jeff, uh, Jeff Wilpon, the team's chief operating officer. The two sides announced that uh, um, the case had been settled in a joint statement on Friday afternoon. The lawsuit, which had been filed in September, alleged that Castrogene uh, was fired from her executive position because Wilpon obje- objected to her having a child out of wedlock. Wilpon denied those claims, saying that Casterline uh, was fired for legitimate business reasons, uh, and the terms of the settlement were not disclosed. So this is what happens. You've got a large company. Um, chances are that there's probably some truth to this. It would be hard to believe that this woman would just make this up. Now, whether or not it's her perception of what happened versus what really happened, we don't know. But the fact is that now the Mets settled with her. We don't know what they settled uh, with her for. We don't know the amounts. We don't know um, what was involved in the settlement. But what I can tell you is that 99.9% of cases that are settled will result in a settlement agreement being drafted and signed by the parties. And in that settlement agreement, 99.9% of the time, you will find a clause that says that each side is leaving or waiving any claims that they might have against the other and that they're entering into the settlement agreement for the benefit of themselves primarily um, to to uh, protect themselves from the burdens of litigation or the costs and expenses associated with it. So there is generally a waiver clause in the settlement agreement that says we each deny any liability. Now, obviously, in this case, it would be the Mets, and there would be a statement by the Mets saying that Mets explicitly deny any liability or wrongdoing, but in an effort to resolve this matter in an amicable way, we agree to pay X amount. That's how settlements work. A defendant is not going to settle a case with you if you don't sign this settlement agreement 
where they can say they weren't at fault. And, you know, it's so hard sometimes because you often, when you have been wronged, uh, in this case, you know, this woman was wrong in her mind. And, again, we don't know specifics or all of the facts. But let's assume for a minute that she was being discriminated against because she had a child out of wedlock. Now, if that is true, then what, you know, what must she feel, right? Wouldn't she be angry? I'm sure. So when you go to settle now with the Mets and you've got this anger and this, how could you do this to me? There is a tendency for people to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to sign a document that says that they're not at fault for anything. No way. They are. Of course they're at fault. But you have to understand that this is how lawsuits work. This is the nature of a settlement. You're never going to get them to admit wrongdoing and then settle with you. That's not how it works. So what's the trade-off? Well, the trade-off is I will allow you to say that you're not at fault and you're going to money. So if you want the money or the terms of the settlement, whatever it might be, then you've got to be willing to give up that, you know, I don't want to say pride or I don't want to say, um, I, I, I don't know what it might be that, that makes people sort of think of things so emotionally that they can't see beyond um, procedure, right? A lot of times people get so emotionally caught up in this and it's like, I can't let them say that they didn't do anything wrong. I just can't. But, all right, I'm going to get a million dollars if I do, so what do I want to do? And it's it's really, it's a tough thing to try to explain to somebody because when you're emotionally charged and when you're in that situation, you know, you just think to yourself, I don't care or it's not about the money. But it is about the money, and that's something that you've got to realize. You've got to realize that when you settle with somebody, of course they're going to deny liability. And that's just par for the courts. So if you want the money or you want the whatever the terms of the settlement are, you've got to be willing to accept that document as it is. So that's what's going on here. And obviously this is confidential settlement, and that's something that the Mets would want. The Mets don't want to disclose the terms of this settlement. They want to keep that closed. They don't want anybody to see it. So the settlement agreement is most likely sealed. You're not going to be able to see the terms or the disclosure. You know, why? Why would a company want to keep settlement terms confidential? Well, one reason is that they don't want other people to see what they settled for and then develop a reputation of an easy target. So um, while it seems, again, hard to believe, there are a lot of attorneys out there who know, right, let's say they're plaintiff's attorneys, and they know that company A, company B, they're, they roll over quickly. So they're going to take cases against that, that defendant or insurance company because they know that there's a greater chance of getting some recovery out of them. And that's the same thing. If the Mets were to disclose the terms of the settlement and the Mets were giving the woman a million dollars, let's just say, you know, another person might say, well, wait a minute. If the Mets are paying her a million dollars, I used to work there, and, and this happened to me, whether it's true or not, um, and now they're going to sue the Mets because they believe that the Mets are going to roll over. So keeping something like settlement terms confidential 
is oftentimes to the benefit of the defendant, who is generally in employment um, litigation, the companies. That's what's going on there. All right, now, we talked about online reviews and leaving bad uh, feedback. This we got a findlaw.com uh, down in Florida. In all to control people's behavior on social media, we haven't finally realized that social media always finds a way. Clearly not for one Florida apartment complex, which reportedly threatened tenants a $10,000 fine for negative comments left about the property. Although the current Widmere K property manager denied enforcing the social media addendum, which apparently is a real document here, is uh, it is nonetheless remi- uh, reminded or remains, I should say, part of the lease agreement as recently as this week. So as part of the lease agreement, you've got this social media addendum in it, and they're saying you can't say anything bad about social media about the complex. So the actual addendum reads, quote, applicant will refrain from directly or indirectly publishing or airing negative commentary regarding the unit, owner, the property, or the apartments, unquote. That's crazy, okay, because um, even if you're going to sign this thing, it says knowingly or unknowingly. So that means that there was an issue where you spoke to your friend and they came over to you, right? Let's say it's on Facebook. You don't post it, but you Does that constitute unknowingly? Maybe. So this is crazy. Well, you know, we've gotten this far into it, and it's crazy. Uh, citing a growing trend in the commercial multifamily apartment leasing industry, where tests will post justified defamatory reviews regarding the apartment complex in an attempt to negotiate lower rent payments. The clause mandates that an applicant shall not post negative commentary or reviews on Yelp, apartment ratings, Facebook, or any other website or internet-based publication or blog. Transgender tenants are threatened with a $10,000 due within 10 days of the first offense and $5,000 for each subsequent bad review. Now, here's my question. If this is the document they want you to sign, why the hell would you want to live here? Because obviously there's a problem, and they don't, they know about it, but they don't want you to post about it. So this is a clear warning sign. Get away. Time and time again, such disparagement clauses have been down by the courts, um, even where they're not against state law. They're at least a very bad idea and likely to backfire in extraordinarily expensive ways. Now, if um, I were apartment complex, I think that I would look to a lawyer to file a lawsuit because I think that this is a violation of First Amendment rights, your freedom of speech. I think that there is no um, enforceability of this term. Now, that's that also might turn out in um, a sort of uh, a defense where you say, well, wait a minute. You had an opportunity to review the documents that you signed. You signed them and you understood it, and now you don't want to comply with it. And so too bad, that's what the contract is. It's akin to a non-compete clause that employers ask employees to sign. So it is possible in non-compete clauses for an employee to read it, to understand that they're not allowed for a period of three years to work within a five to 25 mile radius if they leave 
and they might sign that agreement, but then they quit. They they challenge it and they, they say this is a fair person. They look back and say, "Well, why did you sign it? Because I needed a job." So, could you have the same argument here? You signed, you read, and you accepted it. Boom. What, what more is there? And then the tenant comes back and says, "Yeah, but this is oppressive and a violation of the law." Well, why did you sign it? I needed a place to live. So I think that if you are a business, any business, whether you're an apartment complex or you're a bakery or whatever the heck you might be, you do have an interest in protecting your reputation because, as I said at the beginning of the show, reputation online translates into either a gain or loss of customers. Really, really important in today's business world that you have positive feedback from your customers, okay? They look right online for reviews. If, if your reviews are awful, then good luck because they're not going to hire you. Photographers, accountants, attorneys, doctors, you name it, principals, schools, everything is reviewed, products. So I understand the desire to protect your reputation online. And you should, but if you're going to do something as asinine as requiring tenants to sign something like this, well, you clearly would have benefited from going to an attorney and saying, hey, here's what I'd try, like to try to prevent. How can I do this? Because here's the stupid thing. They put this in, in place. I wouldn't be surprised if they get sued. On top of that, you want to talk about negative publicity. Well, duh, now this is in the news. Now this is going to be all over social media. So your attempt to protect yourself has clearly backfired. And you're going to have everybody, including people like me, talking about your stupidity online. So good, 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 good job. Good job. Completely backfired. If you own a company, if you're in business for yourself, and you are concerned with trying to protect your online reputation, See an attorney. Perhaps talk to a branding or marketing expert. See if maybe there's someone that you can outsource public relations to. Right? And before you, you go and say, well, what, what, I'm a small business. Public relations, what are you talking about? Well, I'm going to talk in the next couple weeks um, on our YouTube channel about outsourcing work to or through companies like Elance and Odesk and show you how you could hire somebody at an outsourced position to do some of these things that you need. Point and lesson to be learned here. Don't be stupid. If you want to protect yourself, go see the right professional. Don't take it upon yourself. Because think of the irony here. We wanted to protect ourselves from negative feedback online. And what did they get? an unbelievable barrage of negative feedback like they couldn't even have ever dreamed of. So do the right thing. I understand the need to protect yourself, but go get help. All right. Um, this one, reported by FindLaw.com, a substitute teacher gets jail time for showing indecent films in class. A former substitute teacher has been sentenced to jail for showing an obscene movie to students in class. Ex-substitute Spanish teacher Sheila 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 Kearns of Columbus, Ohio, who couldn't speak Spanish, 
Well, how does that make sense? A substitute Spanish teacher that can't speak Spanish, okay, we're on, we're on the wrong track, uh, showed five classes of high school students a movie, get this one, called The ABCs of Death. Apparently it probably wasn't in Spanish. Which portrayed bizarre deaths, full frontal nudity, and sex acts. She was charged with five counts of felony disseminating material harmful to juveniles, convicted of four counts, and sentenced to 90 days in jail, according to the Columbus Dispatch. The Ohio statute the teacher was convicted under states that no person with knowledge of its character or content shall recklessly disseminate, provide, exhibit, rent, or present to a juvenile, a group of juveniles, any material or performance that is obscene or harmful to juveniles. And Section 2907.1 of the statute defines materials obscene and harmful to juveniles as those that dis- describe or represent nudity, sexual contact, uh, conduct, sexual excitement, or sadomasochistic abuse. The movie clearly fit the definition of materials obscene and harmful to juveniles. Now, in her defense, Kearns claimed that she never watched the movie. Even though she showed the movie five times throughout the day, she argued that she stood with her back to the screen and never knew that the movie contained nudity, sex, or grisly deaths. Now, wait a minute. Let me go back to the title of the movie. The ABCs of Death. I don't know why I would think that maybe there would be death or other inappropriate things in this movie. Are you kidding me? So are you also deaf? You just with your back to the TV, you didn't hear what what they were saying? You didn't hear the comments and things that the class was saying? Because I guarantee you that the kids were coming out of the class saying, holy crap, what did we just see? So, look, when I was a kid, there was a show... Um, I can't remember it, but it was something similar to this. And it was uh, Faces of Death. That's what it was. Any of you who who are around my age might remember Faces of Death. It was a series of, of uh, VHS tapes that showed all kinds of grisly deaths, people getting run over by tanks, people having their brains eaten out by you know uh, African tribes, crazy stuff, right? And, and as kids, you'd watch this and you'd be like, whoa, and everybody talked about it in the school. So I, I think that this ABCs of Death is probably akin or very close to Faces of Death. Now, just come on. Would you really bring in a movie into school that's titled The ABCs of Death? Oh, I, I don't even know what to say about this. This is just pure stupidity. Now, it's also unbelievable that the school district would hire a substitute Spanish teacher who doesn't speak Spanish. This is what taxpayers' money is going to? Come on. You know, it's so frustrating because being a teacher is such a big responsibility. There are some teachers out there that are in the profession and they hate it, and it's just a low-paying job that they complain about all the time. But the vast majority of teachers love it, and they're really, they have an impact on people's lives. They help shape, along with parents, a child's life. You know, as a teacher, you've got a great responsibility because the way that you handle that student, whether you are a mean person and you put the person, the students down, 
or whether you're a nurturing, supportive person, that is going to have an impact on the growth and development of that child. And you can't, I don't care where, where you, you practice psychology or psychiatry, you're not going to argue that point with me because I've seen it firsthand. I've seen how teachers that bully students have an impact on students, a negative one that takes years to unwind and unravel, if ever. You know, I know a school where there was a teacher who was so abusive to students that certain students actually had to go and get therapy. So that's not something that just goes away. We're not talking about, you know, a teacher that had a bad day and stopped talking about abuse, talking about stupidity on the part of the schools that employ people like this. So you're going to employ an abusive teacher. Duh, are you come on. Now, here in this school, you're going to bring in a substitute Spanish teacher that doesn't speak Spanish. You get what you know you deserve. Absolutely ridiculous. And I think that this school has responsibility here. So if you don't speak Spanish, what else are you going to do with a class that you've got to sit there and babysit? Well, I guess a bright idea would be to show the ABCs of death. Why not? I wouldn't even know where the hell to get that movie. Please. So that woman should be fired. She should never be uh, uh, able to be a substitute teacher ever again, ever again, because that's just absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I would rather have a father come pick their kid up from school with a properly licensed gun than I would have an incompetent teacher teaching my kids. Absolutely shameful. All right. Now, Aaron Hernandez, we all know about um, the former NFL star Aaron, Aaron Hernandez, and this is as reported by CNN. Um, he's involved in this trial, obviously, of the 2013 shooting death of Odin Lloyd, who was a semi-pro football player and was dating the sister of Hernandez's fiance. So last week during the trial, a never-before-seen videotape was introduced to the public and it was taken from Hernandez's own security camera. Now, the question is, is the image depicting Hernandez holding an iPad or a gun? Okay, And I'm going to put a link up uh, in the show notes later on so you can actually take a look at that photo. But if you go on to CNN.com and you search Aaron Hernandez, there's a whole blow-by-blow of what's happened in the trial. But I found this very interesting because I saw the photo, and it is extremely difficult to make out what it is, but it doesn't, to me, appear to be an iPad. So prosecutors are using this grainy footage from the security camera to suggest that Hernandez was holding a 45 caliber handgun, the same kind that police say was used to kill Lloyd. In my opinion, the firearm shown in the video is a Glock pistol, says Glock sales manager Kyle Aspinwall. And this was what he testified to during the trial. Now, again, you look, look at the, the picture. I mean, for those of you watching live on um, YouTube, here's an iPad, right? No matter how I try to hold this iPad, I can't see that I can make this look like a gun. But if you look at the security photo or the security footage on um, CNN or, or throughout the Internet, it really does look as though it's a gun, not an iPad. Now, 
what is this going to do? Well, this is going to have a major impact on the jury. So the video, which is time-stamped, um, after workers in a nearby industrial park describe hearing loud noises like fireworks, um, the moment after Lloyd was gunned down, you know, I, I think this is going to be a, a very impactful on this case. According to CNN, jurors leaned forward in their chairs, peering into monitors and scribbling notes as Aspinwall, a former Massachusetts state trooper and New Hampshire police chief, takes them frame by frame through video during the two days of testimony last week. Um, according to CNN, the defense is having none of that, and they're attacking Aspenwall's credentials, uh, saying that Aspenwall is, is well-schooled in Glocks, but admits he doesn't consider himself a gun identification expert. All right, now, let me just give you a little trial insight. So years ago, I had a case involving a um, road design, a defective design. That was the allegation by the plaintiff, that the road was defectively designed. And at the time, she was riding a motorcycle. So the allegation in the complaint was that the road was improperly designed and a motorcycle, seeing the improper signage, would approach this particular curve in the manner that she did. She's trying to show that she was acting in a reasonable manner under the circumstances. And in order to support her position, she put on the stand a witness, an expert witness, who was very, very well-versed in motorcycles. He was a motorcycle instructor. He taught people how to ride them, safety, you name it. He was, you know, he was the Jack's teller of motorcycles. Now, we questioned him about his expert report and what he was going to testify to. Now, the case was about improper signage and roadway design, not about motorcycle usage, not, not directly. So when we were questioning the expert, when we were asking him questions outside of the jury, what we were trying to do is to get the judge to say that you are not qualified to testify of roadway designs or conditions. You are, te- you are qualified to talk about motorcycle safety and the proper operation of a motorcycle, but not about the roadway design or signage. And that's what's happening here. So to argue, I mean, look, obviously it's, it's a proper defense strategy to argue that the expert's not qualified as a gun identification expert. That is absolutely true. He's not. But if you look at, at the photograph, um, I think it does have to have an impact on the jury as to whether or not they believe that what he's holding is the iPad or the gun. Um, so we'll see where that goes. This this case is going to continue. Um, there's a lot of other evidence, but this is certainly something that is uh, I- exciting. I know that's not the right term when you're talking about a murder, uh, but from a legal perspective, it's exciting to see what's going on. All right, now, last week, if you remember, we talked about Planet Fitness. And, you know, the more I read about Planet Fitness, the more frustrated I get with this company. So um, this is reported by WQAD.com. A lawsuit was filed uh, against Planet Fitness because of a secret camera that was being used. An East Moline woman is suing Planet Fitness in the wake of secret cameras found hidden in the gym's tanning booths. 
a Chicago law firm filed the class action lawsuit on behalf of Mary Barnhill and other potential victims who may have been videotaped disrobing and getting into the tanning beds. The police contacted Barnhill and were describing the tattoos on her body they were able to see from watching the videos, according to attorney Tom Zimmerman. Uh, Obviously, it's a very traumatic experience knowing you go into a private room and disrobe and lay nude in a tanning bed, and you're actually being secretly videotaped, he said. Uh, The suit is asking for damages of more than $50,000, and it's aimed at the um, Plofit franchise, a holding company out of New Hampshire, and MBM Fitness Management LLC. It says Planet Fitness failed to create, implement, and enforce any policies or procedures to ensure the privacy and security of members. Although a Moline man and members of the gym, Trent Hammer, has been arrested for allegedly placing hidden cameras into tanning rooms, and he is charged with unauthorized videotaping. All right, so clearly this guy was a pervert, and he's putting cameras in the tanning beds. Hard to believe that Planet Fitness couldn't look at the tanning beds while they were cleaning them and find the cameras. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know the specifics. Maybe this guy was a master camera hider, and, and you couldn't find the uh, the cameras anywhere. I don't know. Maybe put them up in the ceiling, whatever it was. Um, here we've got another lawsuit now against Planet Fitness. And this in the wake of that uh, transgender case we talked about last week, where they asked a transgender woman to uh, leave, and they barred her from uh, attending Planet Fitness. And also we talked about other lawsuits where people who are too fit are asked to leave. Right, And I made this point last week, and it blows my mind because the more I see about Planet Fitness, the more I don't understand people go there. Um, so you go into Planet Fitness, and you know, you're, you're like me. You're, you're now out of shape and overweight, and you go in, and you work out for a year, and all of a sudden you get back to what you used to be. Now what? Are you done at Planet Fitness? Hey, hit the road. My steps are a little too big. I don't understand it. I do understand what they're trying to do in their marketing scheme, which is appeal to the couch potato, appeal to the person who is intimidated into a gym where you've got people who are super-duper in shape. I get that. Look, when I was in college, I was a jab rower and uh, in college, and I was pretty good. I was ranked um, number two in the state of Pennsylvania. When I went to school there, I was ranked number one in New Jersey for a while, and uh, through the pen relays, I had a successful career. I got injured, and I took up bodybuilding. And, you know, I, I went to a gym that was primarily a bodybuilding gym. And I know what kind of people go there. And I understand that it's intimidating. Now that I have become out of shape and haven't, you know, worked out the way that I used to, have gained weight and all that, you know, do I want to go back to that bodybuilding gym? I mean, no, right? Because... I would be intimidated knowing that I used to be in shape and now I'm not. So would I look for a gym that might have some diversity, a bigger mixture of people that are in shape and out of shape? Yeah. But do I want to go to Planet Fitness and be told that, all right, you know, you, you've got, we've got a no grunting policy and you grunted? Come on. No. I don't want to go to Planet Fitness. Um, I, I don't understand Planet Fitness. I thought their commercials were funny until, you know, no lunk alert, until I realized that they're crazy. They're crazy. And I don't know if these are 
franchises or they're corporate-owned, I would imagine it's a franchise, you're going to have individual franchisors enforcing the rules like the no-grunt policy? No, not for me. Um, we'll see what else Planet Fitness comes up with in the next few weeks because I'm sure that there will be more. All right, and finally today, Sandy Hook families sue the estate of the shooter's mother. This according to CNN. Families of children killed in the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut have filed lawsuits against the estate of the shooter's mother, saying that Nancy Lanza was careless and negligent in leaving a Bushmaster AR-15 rifle unsecured in her home. Adam Lanza, 20, used the assault rifle to kill 21st grade students and six adults in Newton on December 14, 2012. The younger Lanza was mentally unstable and used his mother's Bushmaster to kill her before he went on a rampage at the school and then killed himself. At least eight lawsuits have been filed in Connecticut courts since January on behalf of relatives of the 16 people killed in the massacre, four adults and the 12 children. Court documents also list two people who suffered serious injuries. Now, in December, the parents of nine children killed at the shooting, along with one teacher who survived, filed a separate lawsuit against the businesses behind the Bushmaster rifle. The wrongful death lawsuit filed one day after the second anniversary of the killing named Camphor, a gun distributor, Riverview Gun Sales, as well as the Freedom Group, the company that owns the Bushmaster. It blames the numerous lives lost in just 264 seconds on the shooter's weapon of choice, the Bushmaster. The lawsuits were first reported Friday in the Connecticut Post, which said Nancy Lanza is believed to have had insurance on the home worth more than $1 million, and that's important because I'm going to explain why in a second. Unlike our case against Bushmaster and the distributor for negligent entrustment and marketing of combat AR-15s designed for the military to inflict mass casualties on enemies to civilians like Nancy Lanza, we expect this claim to be resolved quickly, Attorney Josh Kaskoff said in the estate lawsuit. The lawsuit claims that Nancy Lanza kept the rapid-firing Bushmaster in her home unsecured and that her carelessness and negligence contributed to the pain and suffering of the victims. Uh, one lawsuit accused Lanza of allowing her son access to the weapons despite the fact that she knew or should have known that his mental and emotional condition made him a danger to others. All right, let's go on and dissect this a little bit. So there is insurance here at play, and the lawsuit against the estate is going to be something that is completely separate, I think much easier to prove than the claim against the gun manufacturers. Um, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the gun manufacturers get off because it's it's sort of a product liability suit that they've got, a product liability and negligence suit against the gun manufacturers and distributors. Now, if you go back years and years ago to when video recorders, videotape, VCRs were, were used, um, you know, you might remember Betamax, which was a competitor, uh, I believe created by Sony, to the VHS um, um, design. Uh, I, I can't think of the word. Um, format, perhaps. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But in any event, there was a lawsuit involving Betamax because Betamax had produced a device that allowed you to copy VH or other Betamax tapes. Um, so because of the fact it allowed you to duplicate copyright-protected material, there was a lawsuit filed against the, the company. And Sony won. 
And, and, and again, I think it's Sony, but it, it's the Betamax unit. And uh, what they essentially said is that because we've created a device which could potentially be used for infringing use, but that had its primary purpose. Its primary purpose to, was to uh, record or duplicate non-copyright protected material, at least that's what they allege. The court ruled in favor of Betamax and said that, yes, the device itself was non-infringing. Now, I understand that we're talking about copyright and negligence, but if you use that similar argument or analysis, in this case, look at this against the gun manufacturers. Did they manufacture an AR-15 intended to use the No. Okay? Is the weapon itself, and I'm not talking about the debate over of assault rifles, completely separate, completely legislative lobbying and, and stuff going on about that. I'm talking about the product itself, a product liability or negligence lawsuit. Is the product inherently dangerous? Well, guns are inherently dangerous, aren't they? All guns are Ultimately, guns are inherently dangerous. But what did the manufacturer do that was negligent in manufacturing or distributing the AR-15? Now, take the lawsuit against Lanza, the estate. Okay, now this is a different story. First of all, you have homeowner's insurance when you own a home. And her policy limits are $1 million. I told you to remember that because I believe it's important. So here's why it's important. Because when they go to sue the mother, it's going to be far easier to prove negligence and trigger the insurance coverage. So let's run through it real quick. What do you have to prove against the mom? You've got to show that she owed a duty of care. She owed a duty of care to other people in the community to be a responsible gun owner. Okay? Now she's got to be able to show that she breached that duty of care. Well, how did she breach it? By leaving the AR-15 somewhere where her son, who had a mental disorder, could have access to it. So then you ask, well, let's see, did you breach it? Well, was it really foreseeable that your son would try to access an unsecured AR-15. Is that reasonably foreseeable? And I say, yeah, it sure is, because kids are curious, and they're not talking about kids with mental issues. Any kid, any kid is curious. So you leave that out? Does the kid pick it up? Absolutely. You know, when I was younger, I used to sleep over very, very infrequently at my grandparents. On my father's side, I'd sleep over at their house. And uh, I'll never forget one night I was getting into bed and I opened the nightstand drawer and I pull out this revolver and it, I mean, it was heavy and I, I must have been 10. So, you know, I understood the difference between a cap gun because we play with them when, when we'd run around, uh, you know, town and we, we'd play with our, our friends. This thing, which was heavy, right? I could barely handle it. And I remember my grandmother saying to me, oh, it's a toy gun that your cousin left here. Now, obviously it wasn't. And I went home and I told my parents and, um, you know, they had a discussion with them about it. But my point is, is that I was, I saw it and I picked it up. I was curious, not because I intended to use it, not because I wanted to see 
what it did, but it was in the drawer. It was a gun. I picked it up. Now, I could have shot myself. I could have shot somebody else, but I didn't. But the fact that it was reasonably foreseeable that somebody staying over at your house would look in the drawer and find a loaded, unsecured gun and potentially pick it up, that's reasonably foreseeable. So in the case of Lanza, yeah, reasonably foreseeable that her son would pick up an unsecured weapon. All right, now, next factor that you've got to prove, that the injuries sustained and the lives sustained by the families at Sandy Hook Elementary School were a direct and proximate cause of the mother's breach of her duty. So in other words, but for the mother's lack of properly securing the gun, this wouldn't have happened. Now, you can argue that either way. You can say that this kid was deranged and he was on a killing spree, and if he hadn't found the AR-15, he would have gotten access to a gun somewhere else. You can argue that, but I don't think that holds weight. Right? When you've got guns in your house and you're formulating this, this crazy plan to go kill people, you're going to use that gun. You take that away, you lock it up, you, you pre- prevent access to it. All right, well, maybe he's got to go out and find a gun, but maybe he has more time to think about what, what he's doing. Or maybe he has time to come to his senses. Or maybe he doesn't find another gun. I, I don't know. But I do think that... Um, but for her leaving, massacre would not have happened. Again, you can argue with me and you can say, well, he was intent on doing it. He would have found another way. Maybe, maybe. But I don't think in this case that anyone's going to side with the mom. Because the other thing, too, is this. Mom's dead, right? It's the estate. It's the insurance. Who cares about insurance? That's how juries see this. All these kids died. There's got to be some way to repay the families for the loss that they can never repay. And the closest way to do it in our society, in our legal system, is to provide them some sort of monetary recovery. And this is perfect. A perfect defendant, an insurance company. Everybody hates insurance companies. And there's a million dollars sitting around here. So that's what I think is going to happen. I think that this lawsuit against the estate is a winner. I wouldn't be surprised if the insurance company doesn't just settle to make it go away. We'll see what happens. But a much harder case, in my opinion, against the manufacturers and distributors of the gun itself. That's going to do it for the news. Hopefully I did a decent job without Bob here this week. Um, I want to again just thank our sponsor for today's show, Paychex, and uh, remind you that if you're interested in trying out their services, head on over to utlradio.com, click on the link, and they're going to give you a free 30-day payroll processing trial. It gives you a full 30 days to try their services to see if it eases your burden of paying payroll taxes and paying your employees. Um, Clearly, for us, it's it's the only way that we would go. I'd never go back to trying to pay, um, you know, payroll taxes for employees. Just just a danger. So they're kind enough to offer that to our listeners and viewers. 
if you're watching live on YouTube. Um, I also want to remind you about the new Ask a Question feature and page on utlradio.com. That is for our Tuesday live legal and business Q&A. If you leave a legal or business question directly on the site by clicking that link that says Ask a Question, you're going to be able to record your message, and if we select your question to be played on air, you're going to get a mug or a T-shirt. Um, but it's just a great way of having you guys interact and get your questions out there because your question, whether it's about business or marketing or promotion or how to protect yourself, you're not the only one having that thought. There are millions of other people wondering the same thing. So hopefully you know, you'll make use of this and you'll, you'll be able to see a benefit from it and all, everybody else that listens. Uh, I also want to remind everybody that over the last few weeks, we have been streaming this broadcast live on YouTube. And then obviously the videos are available for uh, watching it later. But if you are watching this live or if you're listening, you download the podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to us on iTunes or through Blog Talk Radio. That way you get updates and, and content as soon as it becomes available. We have, don't forget, a Monday show, a Tuesday show, and a Thursday show. Our Thursday interview shows, I told you last week, we're in the process of scheduling our guests. Um, we did have a very, very busy year last year with guests just about every week. And we're working on putting together a nice uh, panel of, of people that we're going to interview over the course of the next few months. So I would anticipate that by April... We're going to have our Thursday lineup back on, um, but I'd like to uh, remind you to to subscribe and also to provide some feedback. All of you who have left comments, um, questions, or inquiries, or, or anything, thank you, because it helps me figure out whether or not this is the right content for you, the right format. You know, I, I'm open to your suggestions. I want you to help me make this better for you. And the only way I can do that is if you tell me. So please leave your questions and comments. Thank you to everybody who has already done that. Uh, remember that you can follow us and join in um, with UTL Radio on so many platforms, right? We've got Blog Talk Radio. You can download the podcast from iTunes. You can watch live on YouTube. You can uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel and get full access. You can go to utlradio.com and download our free app where you can listen to the live broadcast, play archive broadcasts, and see a variety of other information that's available to you. We're also on Facebook. We're on Twitter. So there's always a way to get in touch with us, and I really want to encourage you to do that. Um, that is going to do it for today. Now, tomorrow, we are going to be on at 10 o'clock uh, regular schedule to do our live legal and business Q&A we do have some questions that came in, so we get to those. We're going to try to do one legal and one business question every session. Sometimes the question might involve a longer answer, and in that case, we'll only do one. But please, make use of the Ask a Question page on utlradio.com. Send in your questions so that we can answer your questions live Tuesdays, 10 a.m. on uh, live legal and business Q&A. Thank you for joining me. I hope that um, you guys have a good week. I hope that you tune in to the rest of the shows and visit us online. Take advantage of that free paychecks offer 
And any questions concerning anything you've heard about today, please feel free to contact us, and we will give you our opinion, answer, update, whatever it is that uh, you might need. And I want to thank you and remind you that there's power in understanding the law. iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like taking those perfect new year, new you portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-Mobile to learn more or visit a store today. 